All right, so we're in the book of Hebrews tonight. We're going to finish chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 19 through 39. Take the whole chunk. Thanksgiving meal. Leftovers. Take it all. So Hebrews chapter 10. In a title, in the study I'm titling, The Danger of Despising. It's the fourth warning passage here of Hebrews. And the writer is going to encourage us to press forward as he has been, looking forward to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So let's, uh, let's begin with prayer. Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that you would be our teacher tonight, that you would speak to us from this text. We thank you for the opportunity to go chapter by chapter and verse by verse, Lord. Um, being able to get in the word and break it down, Lord. And as we know from the scriptures, as you took bread and you broke it, Lord, you were able to multiply it and feed the multitudes to where they were full and, and filled up, Lord, and they left with, with some left over, Lord. And I pray that you would do the same tonight, that you would take this passage, break it down for us, help us to understand it, and apply it in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's a principle seen throughout scripture, which is summarized by Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verses, um, in verse 48, here's what the Lord said. He said, to whom much is given, much is required. And this is illustrated in God's dealings with Israel in the Old Testament. The Apostle Paul, speaking of Israel in Romans 9, verse 4, he spoke of the privileges of Israel. He said, to Israel was given the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the law, the service of God, and the promises. Also, in Exodus chapter 19, we're told that Israel was said to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The scripture called them a light to all other nations. Now, because of Israel's abundant revelation and their unique relationship with God, they had a responsibility to walk with the Lord. Now, we all know the history. Israel failed to do that. They disobeyed God. They turned from God to idols They worship false gods. And as a result, because of their relationship with God, God brought discipline to Israel. You see, God would not let his special people live in sin. God loved them too much for that. And as we see a principle in Scripture in chapter 12 of Hebrews, it says, to whom the Lord loves, he chastens. The Lord, because they were his children, they were his special people, the Lord wasn't going to allow them to, to remain there. So the Lord disciplined them. He turned them away from sin through discipline back to himself. They had a high calling. Now, what about the church of Jesus Christ? Well, tonight as we come to the fourth warning passage of the book of Hebrews, we see that the writer is going to exhort the Hebrew believers to walk in obedience. Why? In light of the abundance of privileges and promises that they had received in Jesus Christ. Chapters 1 through chapter 10, verse 18, is all about doctrine. It's all about Christ and how he's greater than anything that they could have in the Old Testament, anything that they could have in Judaism. So far, we've seen that Christ is greater than the prophets. He's greater than the angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than the priesthood. He's greater than the Old Testament sacrifices. He's greater than the temple. In light of all these things and the blessings that come through the new covenant that we have in Christ, they are to press forward in obedience. As we'll see, if they would refuse to do so, Just as we see in the Old Testament, God would discipline these believers. We have another case of to whom much is given, much is required. Look at verses 28 through 29. 
The writer says, anyone who has rejected Moses' law dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy of, of those who have trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? The writer is talking to believers in this passage, as we'll see from the first section before that and the section after that. Now, the purpose of this warning here is not to cause these believers to live in fear, in fear of going to hell. As we'll see, this passage isn't even talking about losing your salvation. It's talking about physical discipline. The writer wanted to encourage these believers to press forward and not look back. Now, we've been talking about the context a lot as we go through this book because the context is important, as we'll see from this text. These folks were thinking about returning back to Judaism to relieve their sufferings. They were Jews who got saved out of Judaism. The year is some around 64 to 66 AD when the Jews began revolting against Rome. There was a time of national patriotism among the Jews. And there was these group of Jewish believers separated from the Jewish you know, community, separated from the world and receiving persecution. They thought, you know what? We want peace. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to return back to Judaism. We'll set aside our faith in Christ and we'll go back to the temple, go back to the law, and we'll have peace with our relatives in this time of national patriotism. And the writer says, that's not a good idea. To do so would be to turn your back on Christ and receive physical discipline. Rather than look back, the, writers, the writer says that they were to look forward. They were to press forward to what God had for them. They were to walk in their first love that they had when they were first illuminated, when they were first born again. They were to keep their eyes forward on the coming of Christ and the great reward that he would bring to them. So that's really the summary of this passage, and we'll break it down as we go through it tonight. We'll see three things in this text as we work through it. First, we see our privileges and promises in Christ require obedience. Second, despising our great salvation equals discipline. And third, the power and principles to walk in obedience. So first of all, in verses 19 to 25, we see our privileges and promise, promises in Christ require obedience. The writer begins in verse 19 by saying, therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Now, the writer in these verses is going to give these guys some exhortations or some encouragements to press forward, but he begins by telling them all that Christ has done for them before he does that. He summarizes, really, all that he's been saying about their promises and their privileges. He says, listen, in light of what Christ has done, and that's where he has the word therefore, or in light of all that you've learned so far, here's what you need to do. These folks were brethren. They were fellow believers. They weren't just people who were professing believers. They were believers as the writer was. Now, these guys were given amazing privileges in Christ. They were given privileges that were greater than the high priests of the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, the high priest could go into the temple, the holiest of holies, that second place of the tabernacle and temple, once a year on the Day of Atonement with the blood of an animal. And he had to go in there and he had to perform specific rituals, right? The sprinkling of the blood on the mercy seat to make atonement for the people just once a year. But the writer here says that we as believers in Jesus can enter in with boldness now to the holiest by the blood of Christ. The holiest is speaking of heaven. You see, the tabernacle and temple, the, that place was only a, a picture or a copy 
of what's in heaven. You see, now through Christ, we can enter in with boldness. This means that we can come straight in. We don't have to go through a priest anymore. We can come straight in and, and go into the presence of the Lord. Boldness also implies availability. Not just once a year, but whenever. Whenever we need to, we can come into the presence of the Lord. Boldness implies intimacy because of relationship. We're children of God. And just as we can enter, you know, just as a child can enter into the courts, say, if their father was a king, you know, a servant couldn't just enter in. They would have to ask for permission to come in. But a child of a king can come in at any time. And even so, you and I, as children of God, we can enter into the court of the king anytime we want. Because there's that unique relationship that we have with the Lord. So there's a privilege that we have. It's a privilege of entering in by faith. Verse 20, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God. So we have VIP passes to the throne room of God. We've been given these through the death of Jesus on the cross. That death of Jesus was once and for all. It doesn't need to be repeated over and over and over as they had to in the Old Testament. The way God did this was he became a man. Think about that. God became a man. People are always against God. God's, God's hate and God's you know, angry. Well, hey, God became a man for you that he can die on the cross for your sins. He took up a human body and there he went to the cross for us. Why? Because sin separated man from God. And that's illustrated in the temple, in the tabernacle there. There was a veil. And that veil stood between those two rooms in the tabernacle, in the temple, the holy place and the most holy place. In order for the high priest to go in, he had to pass through that veil once a year into the holies of holy. Where the writer of Hebrews says, think about what Jesus has done for you. God became a man and he died for you on the cross and that veil was ripped from top to bottom. That's what we're told. Symbolizing that the way to God has been opened to all. That there's direct access now through, notice, the veil that is his flesh. And so through the breaking of Jesus' body on the cross, that veil now is open to all so we can come straight to God. We don't have to go through a priest any, you know, anymore like in the Old Testament. We can come straight to the Father, straight to the throne of grace. Not only that, but we have a high priest who's over the house of God. So we have Jesus who's representing us before the Father. So we have access. We have this open access, and also we have Christ, our Savior, who is there to represent us to the Father. We're told that this is a new and living way. New means freshly slain. You see, the effects of Jesus are more effective than the blood of the animals that were sacrificed. Those things needed to be done over and over and over. They would get old, right? After the year, they would need to be done. But not Christ's sacrifice. In the sense, it's freshly slain in the sense that the application of it is always relevant and always applicable to us as we enter in. It's a living way. Those who come to God are born again, and we have a relationship with the living Savior. Now, I work on the, you know, the base, and you know, I, I work with people who aren't believers, who maybe have grown up in traditional backgrounds, and all they think of Christianity as is a religion, like some textbook that you read and some rituals that you perform, but they don't understand the reality of Christianity, that it's a relationship with a living Savior, that Jesus Christ is alive right now in heaven, just as 
say the president is wherever he is, you know, out in, you know, in, in the United States or in the world. I mean, Jesus is alive right now in heaven. And, we, and we're going to meet him one day. And to get more intimate than that, the Bible says that when two or three or more are gathered, he's here with us in this place. When John saw Jesus in Revelation, he saw him walking among the lampstands, which is a picture of the, of the church. And so the Lord is, is with us. And we're going to see him in our flesh one day as he resurrects us. So based on these things, these privileges that we have, the fact that we can come straight to God, the fact that our sins are forgiven, the fact that we're children of God, the fact that we have a relationship with the living Savior requires obedience. It's much more than God gave through the law. It requires us to respond. Now, how are, how are we to respond as believers? Well, we're, we're to respond in obedience by faith, hope, and love. First, we see obedience and faith in verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The phrase, let us draw near, speaks of worship. In the original language, I'm told it means keep drawing near. And so really, this is the heart of the church. This should be the heart of the believer. We're to continually approach the throne in worship. That's why we were made. We were made to glorify God. We are made to worship Him. Everybody's looking for fulfillment in this world, you know, looking for something to fulfill them and satisfy them. Well, we're told what that is in Ecclesiastes. God has placed eternity in your heart. And only through worship, only through a relationship with Jesus can we really be truly satisfied and fulfilled. And the writer says, come, let us draw near. Let us come and worship the Lord. He teaches us how we're to worship. Worship begins with a true heart. True means a sincere heart. It means one without wax. It's one that, that's real, one that's genuine. The Lord wants a true heart, a genuine heart, and full assurance of faith. Faith means that we believe what Christ has done for us on the cross. It's really simple, and think about it. The disciples asked the Lord, hey, Lord, what must we do that we may do the works of God? And the Lord said, here it is, believe on the one whom he has sent. What, really? Through our faith in Jesus, we have this access to the Father. He wants us to have faith in his work, knowing that we come to God not based on our works, but upon his grace alone. We also come with the reality of the blessings of the new covenant, recognizing that they were uh, done on our behalf, are given to us on behalf of Christ, and we share in them. It's not like the scribes and Pharisees who would approach God based on their own works, but it's based upon Christ's grace alone. We're to come with hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience, this is another symbolic reference to the Old Testament. You see, in the Old Testament, the priest would enter in, as I said, the holy place once a year. And he would sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat, making atonement and purification for the people for that year. Well, as believers, we're, we have been sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. In other words, as we put our faith in Jesus, in a sense, our conscience has been cleansed by Jesus' blood, by his death conscience being cleansed, what that means is this, is that we as a believer can know for our fact that our sins have been forgiven and taken away. The Old Testament believer, they couldn't have a pure conscience or a clean conscience concerning sin. Because every year they had to bring sacrifices. And in that sacrifice was a reminder every year that, hey, your sins are only covered. Your sins aren't forgiven and taken away. But the believer in Jesus 
we can know that through the death of Jesus, our sins are no more. Now, that doesn't mean that we're sinless. No, the Lord is still changing us, but in our position before God, God looks at us as if we have never sinned. He puts our sins as far as the east is from the west, and he does not hold us accountable and responsible for our sin. Pretty amazing through Jesus Christ. We've been washed with pure water. Our bodies have been washed with pure water. This speech symbolically, once again, of cleansing from sin. You remember that account in John 13 when Jesus was with his disciples? He began washing his disciples' feet, and Peter objected. He said, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet. And the Lord said, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. He said, okay, well, Lord, then give me a bath. Go for it. And the Lord said, Peter, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. But you only need to wash your feet. And the Lord was teaching these believers New Testament truths. That in Christ we have been cleansed from our sins. We're clean positionally before God. But as we walk through this world, we still need to have the Lord cleanse our feet in the sense of confessing our sins and walking with the Lord. But positionally, we're clean before the Lord. Now, that's our faith. Second, we have our hope. Verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. The words hold fast means keep holding on. And really, this is a decision of the believer as we walk through this sinful world as we walk through this world that's filled with false teaching, you and I need to make the decision that we need to hold on. Now, it's an act of faith, it's an act of the will, but it's also an act of God. The Bible says God keeps us by his power. That's what Peter said. He said, the Lord keeps us in power by faith. Also, John reminds us in his epistle that there were some who forsook the Lord, And he said that if they were of us, they would have remained with us. But since they have departed, they were not of us. And so John said, hey, if they were true believers, they would have have abided in Christ. That's what Jesus says in John 15. He says, hey, you know, if, if you don't abide in me, you're cast out as a branch and bear no fruit. And so as we abide in the Lord we bear fruit, and the Lord will give us the strength and the power to abide. He he keeps us if we have truly given our heart to him. Now, the focus of hold on has to do with our confession of hope. The confession of hope has to do with the Christian faith, and it's really all that the writer has been summing up and talking about throughout this epistle, all that Jesus has done for you. The gospel, we believe, is very simple. It's that you're a sinner. You have nothing to stand before a holy God in. The fact that Christ sent his son Jesus to die for you on the cross, to take your sin, And then he demonstrated that he did that by raising Christ from the dead. And if a person's willing to turn from their sin and believe in God, you'll be saved. That's the confession of our faith. But really the entire scriptures are what support that that doctrine, that gospel. You know, so if, if the scriptures aren't true, then that gospel is not true. And so we need to hold fast to the scriptures. And holding fast to the scriptures proves that our confession in the gospel is genuine. It's true. Verse 24, let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. So we've seen faith, we've seen hope, and now we see love. This is our third exhortation. We're to consider other believers. The word consider is used in Hebrews chapter 3. It was already used 
And the writer was talking about Jesus at that time. He told the readers to consider the apostle and high priest of our calling. That word means to think about, to make a careful study and investigation of. Not just to give kind of a glance, but man, really think about this. And now he applies it to our relationship with other believers. He says, we're to consider one another and how we can stir up love and good works in each other. It takes a lot of thinking. I have to confess, you know, that I probably don't think about others as, as, as much as this exhortation talks about. That we're to think about how we can minister and bless others. That's what our focus needs to be on. To stir up good works. Meaning, how can I equip a person to walk more effectively in the Lord? You know, this is in contrast to the thinking about liberty where it's like, well, I don't really care. I'm mature in this area. I can do this. But if that believer can't do it, well, then that's, that's fine. But I'm going to do it anyways. It's really the exact opposite if I'm considering others, if I'm thinking about them. I'm going to think about ways that I wouldn't stumble somebody else with my liberty. I'm going to think about ways that I can build them up. Consider others in love. How can I minister to someone in need, whether it's physically or spiritually? We're to consider others. Now, the writer tells us how we can do that in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So the way that you and I can minister and encourage other believers is by being involved in the church. It's by coming together and gathering together with one another. That's how we can be involved and minister to others, by, by being involved. Now, some were not considering others, but they were in sin. They were only thinking about themselves. And as a result, they had forsaken the fellowship of believers. Now, to forsake the fellowship of believers doesn't mean that they weren't coming to all the services that they thought they, you know, they should come to. To forsake the fellowship of believers means that they had refused to come to the fellowship because they had gone back to Judaism. They had turned their back. They had forsaken it altogether. So, so I'm not going to beat you tonight about not coming to every single service that we have. You should come to every service that we have. I mean, you know, if you really want to be blessed, but, you know, but... That's not what the passage is talking about. Often people take it out of context. You know, it's, it's easy to use certain passages of Scripture. Oh, yeah, by the way, I'm not going to make it through the whole chapter, so I'm just going to focus on this for now. So, so it's one of those Bible teacher things, I guess. But so, you know, so, I mean, you know, we might as well just encourage each other to, to come and be blessed. But, um, you know, but, but if someone is, is, is not coming as much as we think, well, then we should pray for them. And pray that the Lord would, would encourage us and, and use the words to, to say to, to really draw them near and, and how they can truly be blessed. So these folks, they weren't doing that. They had turned their back on the Lord. They had turned their back on the other believers, and they were despising it. Now, the writer goes on here and says that they should actually exhort them to come back in light of the day approaching. In light of this day approaching. Now, what is this day approaching? Well, commentators are divided. And so if there's good, smart guys that are divided, I'm, I'm not smarter than them. So I'll just give you both, both sides of the coin here. There are some who are talking about, you know, that this is actually talking about the coming of the Lord. The day of the Lord, meaning the, the coming of Christ and the fact that they were to fellowship with believers in light of that coming day, possibly. But I think in context, 
as we'll see next week now, and concerning this judgment passage, because it's a, it's a heavy-duty passage, it's talking about the day of judgment, which was going to come as a result of Israel's national rejection. Christ spoke of that day in Matthew 23 and also in chapter 24. You see, the Lord came to Israel as their Messiah. He offered them the kingdom that was promised to David and, and other believers. And what they do? They forsook it. They turned their back on the Lord. And, and the, on the basis of the fact that they said that the Lord was demon-possessed. They said, he's not the Messiah. He's doing miracles. Well, we don't really care about those miracles. He's doing those things on the basis of being demon-possessed. And as a result of that, the Lord went on and began to talk about how the fact of the kingdom would be postponed until a future date. The Lord's ministry changed also at that point. He began teaching his disciples about this new work called the church age in which we live today, which began on the day of Pentecost. Now, on that generation which rejected Jesus as the Messiah, he predicted that a judgment would come. And that judgment would specifically be the destruction of the Jewish temple. He told his disciples as they were there on the mountain, not one stone shall be left upon another, but they all should come down. But also associated with that judgment of the temple will come physical judgment on that Jewish generation which rejected their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And on the first day of the church, on the day of Pentecost, when over 3,000 people got saved, Peter stood up and said, be saved from this wicked generation. And how would they be saved from it? Well, they would put their faith in Jesus, and they would identify with Christ by being baptized in his name. It wasn't for salvation. It was for identification. The fact that they were now identifying with Jesus, and they would no longer be identified with that Jewish generation which rejected their Messiah. That coming day was coming. The year is somewhere around 64 to 66 AD. The writer didn't have a calendar saying, I know it's going to be on 70 AD. It did come in 70 AD. But prophetically, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the writer was predicting the fact that a day of judgment was coming. And if these people would forsake the assembly of believers, if they would return back and go back as some were doing, then they wouldn't walk in blessing. They would walk in discipline. They would receive this physical judgment from the Lord and they would, you know, and, and their temple would be in ruin to, you know, what they were trying to go back to. And so it's a great responsibility for you and I as believers. We have been given an amazing privilege in Christ, the fact that our sins have been forgiven. We can come straight to the throne of God. We've been given amazing promises. The fact that the Lord has begun, uh, uh, you know, he began a work and he's also going to complete it. There's no reason to turn back now, but we're to press forward in what the Lord wants us to do. Paul, in writing to the church of Corinth, talked about that. He talked about the work of the Spirit in a person's life, the fruit of the Spirit. And he said, here it is, faith, hope, and the greatest of these is love. And so if I'm really, tonight, if, if I'm really abiding in what the Lord is doing for me, if, I'm, if, if I really understand the blessings and privileges that I have in Christ, then these fruits are going to come forth from my life. Amen?